the exiles back to Jerusalem, their capital city, to rebuild it. The book of Ezra, which comes directly before Nehemiah, both in our Bibles and chronologically, tells of their story in that, that initial attempt um, to rebuild the city. And they're successful in two main ways. They rebuild the temple, and then they reteach the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. And it's all going great. Then, in about the year 460 BC, they attempt a third project, and that is to rebuild the city walls. It's a big project. They get, go, they get started with that project. But at this point in time, there was a new king in Persia, a completely different person that had originally sent them back to rebuild Jerusalem. And this new king basically gets scared, and he's like, well, if I let these walls keep getting bigger and bigger and stronger and stronger, they might rebel against me, so I'm just going to snuff this out. I'm going to go and I'm going to destroy the walls. I'm going to burn the gates. And that's exactly what he does. And this is exactly the same king, Artaxerxes, who we then learn that Nehemiah will one day serve. So flip forward in time to 445 BC. Here's Nehemiah. He's under this, this king, King Artaxerxes. He's got a great relationship with this king because he's, he's his cupbearer. And cupbearers would go into the king's chambers. They would drink the wine first to prove that it wasn't poisoned. And then they would hand it over to the king. So he knew this king on a personal level. And then he hears this news from his brother that about 10 years before, the gates have been burned, the walls have been torn down, and it completely cuts him to the heart. He weeps, he mourns, he fasts for a few days. And then he spends four months in prayer about this whole situation. And then he risks his own life by going to Artaxerxes the same king that had destroyed the walls 10 years earlier, and he asks if he can go and do that exact same thing. But we read that instead of exploding with rage, Artaxerxes granted Nehemiah's request, and he sends him back to Jerusalem with all that he would need to rebuild the walls. And then in a key detail, chapter 2, verse 8, we learn that King Artaxerxes treated Nehemiah favorably because the gracious hand of God was on Nehemiah and his rebuild project. So this, this theme of, of God moving things along, shaping history for his glory and for people's good, is a theme that we return to here in chapter 6. Chapter 6 focuses our attention once again on the rebuilding of the wall. And it also reminds us of another key theme in the book of Nehemiah, which is that of opposition. Opposition to God's work and opposition to God's people. And it also focuses our attention once again on the central character of the story, which is God. You see, from a theological perspective, the whole book of Nehemiah could be summed up with this phrase. When God moves, no one can stand in his way like molten lava flowing down a volcano, like, like an avalanche ripping through a forest, there is a sense in which when God is on the move, he cannot be stopped. Nothing will slow him down. Nothing will halt his progress. He will accomplish what he sets out to accomplish. And in chapter 6 of Nehemiah, we read of what it's like to partner with a God who is on the move in this world. And we see from Nehemiah's single-mindedness, his persistence 
his peace, his discernment, and his faith, all these qualities that we can have through the power of the Holy Spirit as we desire to be used by God to build his church. So let's dive into chapter 6 then, shall we? And before we do that, let me, let me pray for us quickly. Lord God, we thank you so much for your word. Thank you that we're reading stories that are over 2,400 years old and yet they're so relevant to our lives. Thank you, God, for all that we're going to learn here in chapter 6 about peace, faith, hope, um, and about you, um, your, your unstoppable power. And thank you, Lord, that you want to fill the earth with your glory. You want to fill, you want to fill the earth with people who know and love you and who have been transformed and changed by you. So we thank you, Lord, for, for that mission that you're on, and I thank you, God, that we get to partner with you in that. So would you teach us from this chapter in your great name? Amen. Okay, so kind of broken this sermon down into three sections. Um, section number one is verses one to nine, and I've called it overt tactics. I'm not coming down. And the second one is verses 10 to 14 and 17 to 19, which is covert tactics, I'm not running away. And then the last section, which is a short one, verses 15 to 16, when God moves. Okay, so overt tactics, I'm not coming down. So chapter 6 comes on the back of chapter 5, which highlighted social injustice, and it was a little bit of a sort of, it's kind of like an aside in the story. So where we're we're picking things up in chapter 6, it's kind of following straight on from chapter 4, from the end of chapter 4. And in verse 1, we're reacquainted with Nehemiah's Enemies, his opponents, Sambalat, Tobiah, and Geshem. They're talked about in chapter, uh, in chapter 2, and they're talked about in chapter 4. And according to chapter 6, these powerful men, they haven't given up just yet. They're still trying their best to discourage and intimidate Nehemiah and the people. So we read in chapter 6, verse 2, that after their death threats failed, to discourage the people, they try a new tactic. So Sambala and Geshem propose a meeting in the Ono Valley, which is about halfway between Jerusalem and Samaria, where these guys were from. And it would have, it would have been about a three-day round trip for Nehemiah if he'd gone to the Ono Valley. And we don't quite know why or what the purpose of the meeting was, but it sounds like it's trying to broker like some kind of peace deal. And Nehemiah, he's sharp enough to spot that this meeting is a trap and that his enemies are trying to lure him away from the safety of Jerusalem so that they can harm him. He knows that at best, this meeting is only going to be a distraction and at worst, this meeting could lead to physical harm, even death. His response to Sambala and Geshem is memorable. He's high up on the wall, he's he's doing his job, he's overseeing the project, and then he basically shouts down words to the effect of, I'm not coming down, I'm too busy, I've got too much going on here, sorry, I'm not even going to climb down and have a conversation, see you later. And this happens four times over. So they send him an invitation, he shouts down, I'm not coming down, sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm busy, thanks, and he keeps working away. 
So he constantly refused to be called away from this important work that he was doing. You see, Nehemiah knew with absolute certainty what he was about as a human being. He had a rock-solid sense of calling and purpose. This is why he was able to constantly rebut all of these attempts to discourage him and dissuade him. Because he knew what he was called to do, and he knew that it was far more important than what they were trying to get him to do. Friends, every Christian has a similar calling, a similarly high calling. 1 Peter 2.9 says this, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You see, through the work on the cross and the work, the triumphant work of the resurrection, Jesus not only saved us from something, he saved us for something. Yes, he saved us from sin. Yes, he saved us from eternal death. But he saved us for a reason. The salvation that he gives us is so that we could belong to God. We could belong to one another for the sake of the world. You see, this is the calling on the life of every single Christian. Love God, love each other, love the world. The local church, in God's wisdom, is where we work out this calling together. God brings us together to grow in love for him, grow in love for each other, and grow in love for our communities and our world. To share what we have found in Christ with a world that so desperately needs his love, hope, and peace in Christ. So like Nehemiah, we've been called to put our hands to important work. Like Nehemiah, we will face opposition, discouragement, doubt, fear, and despondency. But like Nehemiah, when the heat is on, we can remind ourselves and each other, that we have a high calling on our lives. And so we will persist, not turning away even for a moment from the work that God has given us to do for his glory, for our good, and for others' good. You see, Nehemiah's focus on the rebuilding project it flowed out of his calling, but it also flowed out of his identity. He belonged to the tribe of Judah, which meant that he could take the words in Deuteronomy 7.6 and apply them directly to himself. It says there in Deuteronomy 7.6 that people of Judah are God's treasured possession. His treasured possession. That's what Nehemiah could say of himself. And see, we, through Christ, we can point to a similarly incredible identity that God has given us 
We can call ourselves children of God. See what great love the Father has given us, that we should be called God's children. 1 John 3.1. I want you to imagine two soccer players. They're exactly the same ability level. Nothing, nothing to split them apart, exactly the same. But the one has parents who are hard on her, who are never pleased with her. Even when her team wins, they're always putting her down and telling her about all the things she did wrong, about all the ways that she's not good enough as a player, pointing out all those things that she didn't personally do well in the game. The other player has parents who are unconditionally supportive, always telling her that what matters is that she enjoys herself, treats her teammates and opponents with respect, and does her best. When she fails, they encourage her to keep going. When she triumphs, they focus on all the things she did well and not the things that she did badly. Now, which of those two soccer players who are, the, who are exactly the same in ability, which of those two players is going to perform better? It's obvious, right? You don't need to be a sports psychologist to know that the one with the encouraging parents is going to perform better on the field because she's playing with a, with a freedom and an, abandon, an abandonment to the game compared to the one that's playing constantly under the, you know, the threat of you know, being disparaged and discouraged by those parents on the sidelines. You see, as Christians... We're not only called by God, but we're also deeply treasured by God. He looks at us as his sons and daughters. My wife and I are having a baby girl in mid-June. And as, <laughs> and as, the, as the date roll you know, becomes ever closer, I'm finding myself, often just before I fall asleep at night, just thinking about what it's going to be like to meet her for the first time to see her, to hold her, to kiss her on the head. Baby's heads are the best, right? How how crazy it is then that God thinks about us in the same way, but he's the perfect father. His love for me greatly eclipses the love that I will have for my daughter. See what great love the father has given us, that we should be called God's children. You see, knowing our identity in God, it gives us a foundation on which to build our entire lives. His posture towards us is one of constant encouragement, love, and forgiveness. Knowing this, we can throw ourselves into the calling we have with abandon. Knowing that our performance does not change our identity. We can build God's kingdom free from any obligation to do so. Letting everything we do flow from the deep gratitude we have for our Heavenly Father. Let's dive back into the passage at verse 5. So Sambalat, sensing that their first tactic is getting them nowhere, he tries a fifth time. And this time, he writes an open letter. And like all open letters, they're supposed to be shared around and read by many people. And this is what the open letter says. It says, Nehemiah and his team are going to rebel 
and then they're going to make Nehemiah king. Sambalat makes it clear to Nehemiah that the contents of this open letter will make it back to King Artaxerxes, the king who just a decade earlier had destroyed Jerusalem's walls because he feared that people would rebel. Same guy. Artaxerxes would no doubt retaliate with deadly force if Nehemiah was to rebel. So once again, Sambala invites Nehemiah to a peace meeting to smooth things over. And on the surface, Nehemiah seems to easily shrug off the open letter. But then in verse 9, we get an intimate view of Nehemiah's emotions. Sambala and Geshem's open letter, they've shaken him up. Their threats about the king were grounded in reality. Persian kings were known to be notoriously fickle. They were always changing their minds. Nehemiah, therefore, he had no way of knowing for certain whether King Artaxerxes would remain his trusted ally and friend or whether the king would turn on him and kill him for planning a rebellion. Throughout the book of Nehemiah so far, whenever Nehemiah's confidence takes a hit, whenever he's rattled, whenever he's knocked off balance, without fail, he turns to God in prayer, showing that like the psalmist in Psalm 46, he believes that God is my refuge and strength, a helper who is always found in times of trouble. Zooming out for a moment and thinking about chapters 1 to 6 of Nehemiah, one thing is clear from Nehemiah's life, his actions and his priorities. Nehemiah is a man who has profound peace. The saying, character is revealed when the pressure is applied, is definitely a true one. But you could also say the quality of one's peace is revealed when pressure is applied. You see, over the course of our lives, the things we look to for peace, they will shape the people that we become. When Nehemiah arrived in Jerusalem, he was thrown into a highly pressurized situation. Everyone was looking to him to lead. He was faced with a daunting task, rebuilding the walls that people were saying was impossible. He faced opposition on the outside. He faced crippling doubt on the inside. He faced systemic injustice. And the reality, the constant reality, that King Artaxerxes could turn on him at any moment. You see, Nehemiah had no time to cultivate a life of peace once he got to Jerusalem. He was thrown in at the deep end. It was time to sink or swim. And the reason that Nehemiah was able to hold it together under such immense pressure points to the source of his peace and the fact that he cultivated it over many, many years. Chapters 1 and 2 tells us that Nehemiah spent a full four months in prayer before he embarked on his mission to go and rebuild Jerusalem. Perhaps he knew that what lay ahead was the biggest challenge he would ever face in his life. Perhaps he knew that what awaited him in Jerusalem would test him in a way that 
He'd never been tested before. Perhaps he knew that, that he would have to draw up peace from a well deep inside in his soul to make it through the challenges that he would face. So the question is, where are we going for peace? And how is that source of peace treating you? How is it going to hold up when the rug gets pulled from under you, when tragedy hits, when the wheels fall off? Do we have the kind of peace that is so deep and strong that it can weather any storm? See the glorious truth of the gospel? is that in Jesus we have the same kind of peace that Nehemiah had. John, 13, sorry, John 16, verse 33 says, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. You will have suffering in this world, but be, be courageous. I have conquered the world. So this saying is kind of like couched in the Literally, like, the last kind of, like, teaching session that Jesus ever gave to his disciples, like, right before he was arrested and then taken off to be crucified. So you can imagine the disciples are, are leaning in. If someone's on their deathbed and saying their last words, they're saying their last goodbyes, you lean in and you listen. And he's getting towards the end of this teaching session, which some people call the upper room discourse. And he says, I'm telling you all this stuff, all the things that I've just been telling you, I'm telling you so that you can have peace. See, this is a promise for any believer, anywhere, anytime. Jesus says, know me, know my words, and you will have peace. Peace that is different from any other peace you will find anywhere else. Curious then, that Jesus' very next words are you will suffer. But Jesus, you just said I was going to have peace. And then in the very same breath, you're telling me I'm going to suffer? Yes, says Jesus. But take heart. I've conquered the world. See, according to Jesus, it's not if we're going to suffer, it's when we're going to suffer. But the good news is that Jesus promises us a peace that can stand up under the most intense suffering that comes our way. The peace Jesus gives is the only peace that can truly withstand the pressures of this world. The only peace that's robust enough to survive everything that life throws our way. The only well we can keep drawing from that won't run dry. Earlier on in that final teaching session in John, Jesus says this, I am the vine, you are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit because you can do nothing without me. It's John 15, 5. You see, the source of our peace is a person, not a ritual, not a practice, not a lifestyle, a person. In Nehemiah 6, verse 9, Nehemiah, under immense pressure, goes where he always went in times of need. He goes to God. 
He turns to his father in heaven, his, defend, his defender, his provider, his deliverer. Nehemiah's peace came from a person, and he had cultivated a close, personal friendship with God. So rather than running away from God in his time of need, he allowed the visceral fear, the mental anguish that he was experiencing to drive him into the arms of God. He ran to God, to the source of his peace, the one who had never let him down, the one who had proved himself faithful time and time and time again. Nehemiah asked God to strengthen his hands, calling back to chapter 2, verse 18 where we read that God strengthened people's hands to do the work of rebuilding. So Nehemiah is asking God to continue doing the same thing that he's been doing all the time, strengthening his hands, because the job is not done yet. They're so close to the end, the walls are so nearly finished. Just a little bit more, O Lord, says Nehemiah. So in light of all this, We should ask ourselves not what is the source of our peace. We should ask who is the source of our peace. Are we rooted in Christ? Are we remaining in Christ? Are we looking to him to to provide the fruit of peace that we so desperately need? To be sure, having the peace of Christ will not guarantee us an easy life. We've already noted That it's not a question of if we suffer, it's when we will suffer. But thanks be to God that when we do, the peace that Jesus gives us can weather any storm, however fierce, however disorientating, however prolonged. Okay, so we've looked at the overt tactics, now we're going to turn to the covert tactics. Verses 10 to 14 and verses 17 to 19. So when the overt attempts to distract Nehemiah from his approach don't work, his enemies take a covert approach. So verses 10 to 14, 17 to 19, they bring Tobiah into the frame, kind of like into the spotlight. And unlike Sambala and Gesham, who are blunt instruments, Tobiah is crafty and sly. We know from Nehemiah 1 verse 10 that Tobiah was an Ammonite official, We also know from chapter 6, verses 17 to 19, that through marriages in his family, Tobiah was also tied by oath to a number of people in Judah. So these contacts on the inside meant that Tobiah was getting like a, a steady stream of information about what was going on inside Jerusalem and what Nehemiah was saying to his people. So if it wasn't bad enough that Sambala and Geshem were hounding him relentlessly in overt ways, now he had to deal with Sambalat's covert tactics, using the contacts with the people of Judah to spy on everything Nehemiah was doing. And Tobiah's underhand tactics didn't stop there. In verses 10 to 14, we read that Tobiah, together with Sambalat, they paid a trusted prophet to lie to Nehemiah's face in an attempt to lead him into sin so that they could discredit Nehemiah, tearing him down, ruining ruining his reputation. 
and proving that he wasn't fit to lead. This prophet by the name of Shemaiah, he lies multiple times. Firstly, he lies about being restricted to his house, a detail that's mentioned there in verse 10. Presumably, he lied in order to get Nehemiah to come to him, to come away from the safety of Jerusalem to his house. He was kind of playing on Nehemiah's compassion. But then in the very same verse, we read that once Nehemiah gets to Shemaiah's house, Shemaiah says, why don't we go to the temple? Proving that he wasn't, in fact, restricted to his house at all. And Shemaiah then goes on to give a carefully crafted oracle. It's designed to sound like prophecy, a word from the Lord. And this prophecy is nothing short of a death sentence. Shemaiah urges Nehemiah to lock himself in the temple because now that he's been lured away from the safety of the city walls and the protection of his friends, Nehemiah is a sitting duck. His enemies are about to close in on him and kill him. What a terrifying moment for Nehemiah. Can you imagine? It's dark. You go to the house of someone who you thought you could trust, a prophet, because he lied about being housebound, and now you're, you're wide open, you're away from the city, you're, you're on your own, no protection. And then that same prophet tells you that this is the night, this is the night that your enemies are going to come for you and kill you. God's holy temple is the only place you can hide. Flee, run, go and take cover in the temple. So what a moment of pressure. As we've discussed earlier, pressure reveals the quality of our peace. And Nehemiah's response confirms, once again, that he has deep peace in God. And not only peace, but also a rock-solid faith. You can almost hear the coolness and the calmness in his voice as he responds to Shemaiah's prophecy. He says, should a man like me run away? What a response. I don't know if Nehemiah's ever been made into a film or a TV series, but this would be an amazing scene. It's dark. He goes under the cover of darkness. All these dramatic words about death, they're going to come for you, they're going to kill you. And then he just stands there and says, should a man like me run away? Just like, what a classic scene that would be. And on the surface, it sounds a little bit like Nehemiah is kind of bigging himself up. It sounds like he's kind of placing faith in himself. Because he also says, how can someone like me enter the temple and live? I will not go. So it sounds like he's bragging a little bit almost. Sounds like he's bigging him up. Sounds like he thinks of himself as a real hard man. No fear, no retreat, no surrender. But if we take his words in the context of the entire book, we are reminded that who Nehemiah is is really just a reflection of who God is. You see, Nehemiah's character has been molded, shaped, conformed into the likeness of his God. So the reason he isn't going to run away is not because he's strong in and of himself, but because throughout his life, he has been strengthened by the Lord and by his vast strength, Ephesians 6.10. It is worth asking at this point, why was fleeing to the temple such a bad idea? Why was it something that he didn't want to do? 
one that he doesn't entertain even for a second. Well, in Nehemiah's mind, running away from his enemies would have signaled a lack of faith. Lack of faith in God and his character and a lack of faith in God's word. So far in the book of Nehemiah, we've heard Nehemiah say these words to the people as an encouragement and as a comfort. So firstly, in 2 verse 8, he says, the gracious hand of God was on me. 2 verse 18, the gracious hand of God had been on me. 2.20, the God of the heavens will grant us success. 4.14, remember the great and awe-inspiring Lord. 4.15, God had frustrated it. That's the enemy's schemes. And then, the la- and then lastly, 4 verse 20, our God will fight for us. So Nehemiah's faith, it was being tested like it had never been tested before. But to turn and run would have revealed Nehemiah to be a hypocrite. He promised the people that God would defend them. So what he does next will prove whether he actually believed that or whether he didn't. But Nehemiah held firm. He kept the faith. He refused to doubt God. Friends, in Christ, we have a faith like this. A faith that flows from our knowledge of God and a knowledge of his word. Debs and I sometimes joke about the longer we're married, the more alike we become. Sometimes we even finish each other's sentences. And sometimes when one of us makes a suggestion, the other one says, oh, I was about to say that. You see, if we commit to knowing God, to understanding his character, to plumbing the depths of his love, then who we are will more and more flow out of who we know. Knowing God's character goes hand in hand with knowing God's word. The more we get to know what God has said through reading and listening to our Bibles, the more our faith will be strengthened as we become more and more like the people that he's promised he'll make us in his word, the promises that he has made for us. Hear these words from verse 2 of the 19th century hymn, Standing on the Promises of Christ my King. Standing on the promises that cannot fail when the howling storms of doubt and fear assail. By the living word of God, I shall prevail. Standing on the promises of God. Lastly on this point, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. It describes faith as a gift. We cultivate it, for sure, through knowing God and knowing his word, but ultimately, it's received as a gift. So like Nehemiah, let's spend time alone with God in prayer, asking him to give us faith in ever greater measures. Not only do we see Nehemiah's faith at work here, we see his discernment as well. After he stands firm, he refuses to run. He then correctly identifies that Shammai had been paid by Tobiah and Sambalat to speak a false prophecy in an attempt to frighten Nehemiah into seeking refuge in a building rather than seeking refuge in God. Nehemiah could sense that there was something about Shammai's prophecy that did not line up with the God he knew 
and the God of his Bible. He knew that God would never ask him to put his faith in the strength of a building rather than in the strength of God himself. He knew that God hadn't called him to a life of fear, worry, and doubt, but a life of boldness, courage, and peace. Nehemiah weighed the prophecy against what he knew of God and of his words, and he found it lacking. Two weeks ago, in chapter 4, we noted that Christians do find themselves in a battle against dark spiritual forces that wage war against Christ and against the church. We comforted ourselves in the knowledge that Jesus has the victory over all the forces of darkness, but that doesn't mean that we won't be targets of spiritual attack, especially if we commit ourselves to building God's church. You see, the battleground for most spiritual warfare is in the mind. As Satan, the father of lies, like Shemaiah, the false prophet, attempts to deceive us and lead us into sin. Just like Shemaiah's carefully prepared false prophecy, Satan's lies can look like genuine truths from God. This is why we must commit ourselves to knowing God intimately and learning his word extensively so that we can rightly call out the lies and, cl- and cling firmly to Christ and to his word, which brings us into joy and peace. Okay, third point then. As I said, this is a short one. Verses 15 and 16, when God moves. So let's just jump back into the passage, come to our last point here. So this is a huge moment in the book, massive moment. In verses 15 and 16, we read that in an astonishing 52 days, the war project is complete. Not only is this a joyous day for Nehemiah and the builders, but we're told that on that day, it struck fear and doubt into the hearts of the surrounding nations, who realized that the only way that a ragtag bunch of amateur builders could have completed the wall so fast was because the Almighty God was with them. These two short verses mark the culmination of six chapters of human endeavor empowered by the strength of God. Nehemiah and his team have proved to the world what is possible when you put your faith and trust in God. In the book of Nehemiah, right from the first time that God is mentioned, in chapter 2, verse 8, The reader is constantly reminded that Nehemiah and the people's triumph are really the triumphs of God. We have considered through this series many lessons on a human level, but on a spiritual level, the message is loud and clear. When God is on the move, no one can stand in his way. Church, we we serve an almighty God who is still moving in our world like he was back in 440 BC. Despite what people may say, God loves the Wallingford neighborhoods, he loves the city of Seattle, he loves this country, and he loves this world. And God loves his church. (laughs) Guys, God loves his church. It was his plan A for blessing the whole earth. When Jesus commissioned his disciples, 
And it remains his plan to bless the whole earth today. As Christians, we've been called to put our hands to an important work of building God's church for the good of our neighborhoods, our city, and our world. God has put this group of believers here in this church at this time for a purpose. God is on the move in our church. He is doing a great work with us, building us up as his body so that we ever more resemble the head who is Christ. Nothing will stop the advancement of God's church and of the gospel because nothing can stop God. So as we build together, like Nehemiah, we can have peace. A peace that transcends understanding, that guards our hearts and minds. A peace that can withstand even the toughest trials we ever face in this life. A peace that comes from abiding in Christ. And in him, we've also been gifted faith, which even when tested, stands firm. And we can have a discernment, a sharpness, that comes from knowing God's character and knowing God's word. And we can put our hands to the important work of building God's church, knowing that when God moves, nothing and nobody can stand against him. Why don't you pray with me? Father, thank you so much for Nehemiah 6. And again, just so rich, so much good stuff in here, Lord, so much to be applying to our lives. And um, yeah, I do pray that we would be men and women who are marked by peace and faith and that you give us a sharpness and a a discernment um, to navigate this this life wisely and, and well. Thank you so much, Lord, that you are at work building your church in a global sense. Thank you that the gospel is going out to the ends of the earth. And I thank you, Lord, that you're building a church here on a local level. Thank you so much for the Hallows Church. Thank you for everybody here. Thank you, Lord, for what you're doing amongst us, God. And it's such a privilege to partner with you um, in the building of your church, building your kingdom. So help us not to do it in our own strength. Help us to rely firmly on your strength. Thank you that you are so strong, Lord, that you are so powerful. Nothing can stand in your way. You're, uh, you're a great and awesome God. You're also, you're also doing such a, a lovely work. You're, want, you're wanting to give people uh, the hope, joy, and peace of the gospel so that um, they would be transformed, communities would be transformed, and then our world would be transformed. Lord, what a beautiful work. Thank you that you're about that good work, and we want to be about that good work as well. So would you strengthen our hands, Lord? Keep us going. In your great name. Amen.